0: words human speech communication capacities are found on many levels throughout the created world but there is nothing like the communicative wonders of human speech author David Volpe in his book in speech and in silence insists that human language is more than a mere add-on to our nature as human beings He says, to a great extent, human speech defines us. To speak is, in some fundamental way, to be human. As Bertrand Russell put it, no matter how eloquently a dog may bark, he cannot tell you that his parents were poor but honest. Words, says Volpe are the currency by which we trade the information, the sentiment, the stuff of human life. Human language provides a window to see into our minds. Words are the bridge that we toss over the chasm between selves. And words not only link us together, they also link the ages together. He says words are the vessels in which the past is carried into the present. Words obviously play a powerful role in our lives. A role that can prove utterly destructive or profoundly beneficial. Nuclear fusion can power a city or destroy it. And our words have even more power to do good or ill. Some might question that, but think about it for a while. What has speech done to damage nations and human history? What has speech done to benefit people? Wise people, people who learn to live with moral skill and godly discernment, recognize the power of speech. If we do not recognize the power of words, we are living in moral folly. We need to wake up and recognize this power. But also, we labor then to skillfully harness human language for the good of others and for the glory of God. This is one of our great endeavors in this life, to learn how to speak how to communicate, how to use this powerful medium of passing ideas from one to another for the good of others, for the glory of God. But as the epistle of James reminded us earlier in this service, that is no easy task. Taming the tongue, disciplining speech, skillfully employing language is a major challenge to all of us. And so we turn expectantly and humbly once again to the book of Proverbs, to hear the counsel of God in this book. Now as we do that, there are a few scattered places where we find a short string of Proverbs dealing with human speech, and we could turn to one of those and focus there for some time. But the Proverbs that we find, as you make your way to chapter 10, and we've come to this place in our study of the book, as we find from chapter 10 and following, these Proverbs are grouped not thematically under neat topical headings. I do not believe the Proverbs are randomly arranged, that they were just thrown together. There's far too much evidence in the Hebrew text that the Proverbs were arranged very wisely, very artistically. However, the Proverbs hit us much like life hits us. A rapid fire spray of divergent themes. They're hitting us all the time, aren't they? In a grocery store, you can be bombarded by anger, harsh words, sexual temptation, and financial folly all in a couple minutes. You have in your car a little child who's really bored and really choosing to misbehave. And you can be tempted with anger which can quickly give way to wanting to use some harsh and belittling words. And then you push that cart down to the checkout place and can be tempted with images popping off the magazines. And then, and I draw no judgments here, but there's seven candy bars all talking to you at once and saying, buy us all. Every one of you? Why not? Right? Rapid fire, all the time, making decisions. Choosing wisdom over folly. That's how the book of Proverbs from chapter 10 and following kind of comes to us, doesn't it? One idea here, one idea here, one here. Again, I believe there's arrangement to it, and we could study that at length. But in that rapid-fire approach, I think that it is appropriate at times to look at the Proverbs thematically. Again, they're not given to us that way. They don't come in neat headings. But we've made our way through a distinct section of Proverbs in chapters 1 through 9, and even poked our way into chapter 10, where there is a consistent theme in the first five verses. But we've worked our way verse by verse through this book to this place. But I think it is legitimate for us to stop and to think thematically about this area of our words, about speech. And what does God say about the words that come from our mouth? Now, I encourage you here, and we'll, Lord willing, end here, but think deeply. Think beyond just the actual words themselves and just what we're saying, but think about what speech conveys, how it is part of who we are. And so as we're talking about speech, we want to just say, well, I want to learn some skillful ways to talk but rather to think about speech as a reflection of who we are. And in that mode, God has much to say concerning our speech. I'd like to start first of all here, and we'll give some slides along the way just to give us guidance in this uh, topical sermon. But some general perspectives on the power of words before we begin with any specifics. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 13. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 13. And we will turn to numerous Proverbs throughout the sermon today, so be prepared for that. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 13 says, and here we think again, just generally, an evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. The words that pass our lips can entrap us. We have a coyote sniffing about in a forest. He comes across a delectable piece of red meat. And he sinks his teeth into that and bam! The hunter's trap is sprung and he's stuck. He can't go anywhere. And he awaits his fate. Words can do that to us. What we say can entrap us can take away our freedom and can make us simply wait around for the bad results. Delectable words transgress the will of God and the love of others and entrap us in all sorts of trouble and distress. Lying words. Filthy words. Words that attack, ridicule, scoff, or slander. Such words dishonor God and they entrap us Second half of the verse, but the righteous escapes from trouble. I think as we understand this to be a contrasting parallel statement, we learn here that our words can also deliver us from trouble. I think it's not just generically talking about righteousness here, but particularly righteousness that we speak. Speaking what is right, speaking what is good and God-honoring, this can deliver us. So just as certainly as we can be trapped So we can escape and find freedom through the words that we use. Verse 14, From the fruit of his mouth a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. How do we put those together? As physical labor secures the rewards of diligence, in like manner skillful words secure blessing. We go out into this world, we speak words which in the grace of God, can indeed profit and bless us. Words of encouragement and honesty and confession, words of counsel and correction and humility, such words can bring as much satisfaction as the reward of a hard day's successful labor. They have that power. And so here, the point simply to perceive and value the potential of wise words. Chapter 18 and verse 7 Chapter 18 and verse 7. Here we do find a place where discussion of language is grouped together in several Proverbs, but I'd like to focus just on verse 7 of chapter 18. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. The Hebrew word translated fool here is our word for moral duller, the naive one. The one who really doesn't get how life works under the direction of God. For this fool, this moral dullard or naive, uncommitted individual, his mouth is his ruin. His lips are a snare to his soul. So again, simply said, people who do not fear God speak words that ruin their lives. They say things, and those words and trap them. It's a serious warning that should motivate us to learn to speak wisely, to avoid such destruction. Verse 20 of the same chapter, verse 20, from the fruit of a man's mouth his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. The satisfaction of the stomach, as well as death and life, may be taken literally here. That's possible in some situations, but they have figurative meaning as well. Our words can indeed satisfy us with the material resources necessary to feed our stomachs, and a person may say something that leads to physical death. But the point is that what we say has a determining factor upon the quality of our lives. I think a lot of people just don't really think about that much. They just say whatever comes to mind. They say what makes them feel good. They use words to just talk. Not realizing that what comes out of our mouth really has an effect upon the quality of the life that we live. With these general ideas staked, let's narrow our consideration and talk for a moment about foolish speech. Now, as I do that, we're narrowing our focus on foolish, unwise, ungodly speech. As the Proverbs play out, often both a negative and a positive idea are expressed in one proverb, but we will just restrict our thoughts uh, analytically here to the negative side, to uh, unwise speech before we turn to wise speech. And I will say, I'm, this is just selective. There are many, many proverbs. I've read f- probably far more than are in this sermon that I've just chosen not to talk, talk about today simply because we don't have eight hours together. But I'll just, in representation of a few ideas, and I think significant ones, we'll look at several ideas of foolish speech. The first is lying words. Lying words are words that do not correspond to reality. They are words intended to gain an advantage for self by deceiving others about the truth. Chapter 10 and verse 18. Chapter 10 and verse 18 says, The one who conceals hatred has lying lips. How do we take that? In view here I think is a situation in which you despise someone but it is not to your advantage to reveal this fact so you lie about what you really think about them Now stop there and think this is wisdom God's counsel teaching us many times we do that thinking we're helping somebody if I told this person what I really thought it wouldn't be very nice for them So we pat ourselves on the back as we lie to them there's probably no one in this room who's not given into this temptation on some level. But I, I would say it is not hypocrisy necessarily to keep your opinion about someone to yourself. Sometimes that's the wisest thing you can do is to say nothing. But it is hypocrisy when you speak about someone you despise as if you respected and loved them. Now, that's something that's going on in your own head, but God sees and knows, and it's not wise. Put it to rest. Don't do that. It is always unwise to say things you do not mean in order to conceal the evil that is in your own heart. When there's wickedness in me, and I use words to hide it from others, I'm on the wrong track. Don't talk like that, is the counsel of God here the latter part of verse 18 says whoever utters slander is a fool slander is a speech intended to is speech intended to defame another person intended to tear down their reputation and slanderous speech is generally made in hushed tones the Hebrew word has that idea at places is used that way of whispering slander may not be a bold-faced lie But it is speech intended to harm the reputation of another, to talk about someone secretively and to twist the truth about that person. Using your words to make that person look bad, that is morally foolish. It's not the way that we should use speech. Such speech will entrap and it will harm you. You're using it to harm someone else. You're whispering behind their back to use words to tear them down. And what God is saying is He puts His arm around us and says, you're destroying yourself. That's what's happening when you do that. Don't talk like that. It's a reminder that God hears every conversation and we need to learn to think that way. Whoever utters slander is a fool is walking in moral folly. Chapter 12, verse 17. Chapter 12, verse 17. Whoever speaks or breathes out the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. You're supposed to understand in the proverb that's not a good thing. It doesn't take the time to articulate the good and the bad. We're expected to discern that But the point is that truth corresponds to reality. Wise words bring reality to light. Foolish words attempt to confuse people about the truth and to deceive them. We all understand this, using words to gain advantage because they're not true. That's foolish. Indeed, God hates it. Chapter 12, verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His delight. An abomination, the Hebrew word is used routinely in the Old Testament in contexts that denounce idolatry and witchcraft and the vile practices of those who do not know God. Lying is an abomination to God. God finds lying repulsive. It is an assault upon his character, upon his name. And we live in a world of liars. The capacity to lie is in all of us and the temptations to do so abound. I read an article this week, some of you perhaps read it, as it talked about lying in politics and how this is becoming almost commendable. Whoever can lie best to gain advantage for their party is patted on the back and reelected. We live in a world where people are liars, but we need to learn from the counsel of God that this is not wise. In fact, God hates it. It's an abomination to Him. Never forget that. 26, 28. 26, In verse 28, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. It hates its victims. We thought earlier in this service of loving God with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourself. Lying is an abomination to God, and it hates others. It's the exact opposite of what God calls us to do. We lie to gain advantage for ourselves at the cost of other people. It's not love that motivates us to lie. It's self. And it's playing God. It's taking the realities of this world and saying, I'm going to be my own God and rearrange the realities the way that I speak them so as to gain glory for myself. God hates it. It harms others. A flattering mouth works nothing but ruin. Even telling people what they want to hear is ruinous. Flattery tells them what they'd like to believe about themselves. But when it's not true, it's destructive. Why is God so excited, agitated about lying? Why are lying words an abomination to God? Because God personifies truth. Every good gift is from Him, and all that is true is of the essence of God. Truth is that which corresponds to reality, and God is that ultimate reality. So when we lie, slander, or flatter, when we use speech to twist the truth to gain advantage for ourselves, we align ourselves directly against God, and we rage against the universe that He's created with its moral DNA. Lying is speech that is wholly out of sync with our Creator. It is thus an abomination to God. It is a path of ruin for others, for victims, and for us lying words secondly is fighting words fighting words words calibrated to attack and to create quarrel chapter 15 verse 1 chapter 15 verse 1 if we are to set aside and turn away from lying words we must also turn away from fighting words a soft answer, and here we see it positively, turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Soft speech is speech that soothes and comforts the listener. It's not necessarily a reference to volume, although that may be involved at times, but the emphasis here of soft speech is on speech that is comforting and non-combative. It's the difference between hitting someone with a sledgehammer and putting a warm blanket around them. Soft speech is the latter. Again, it's not just talking about volume, but it's talking about how this speech is made, how it comes across, how it affects the person. Harsh words stir up anger. This verse is is epitomized in this story of David as he runs into that couple Nabal and Abigail. Nabal epitomizes the second half. With harsh words, what does David do? He straps on his armor to go kill the guy with his army. But Abigail intervenes, and with soft words, not necessarily quiet, but soft, gentle words, kindly words, good words that heal, David takes his armor off. While speech is not directly referenced, the idea is further expressed in 1518, Verse 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Angry words stir up trouble. Wise people learn to control their anger, learn to control their tongues, and learn to speak words of grace that calm tensions, not fuel them. You can use words that are just like throwing kerosene on a campfire. It might be great fun while you're camping, but it's not good between people. and That's how our words can sometimes be used, to just stir up any trouble that's there and make it worse. God counsels us away from lying words. He counsels us away from fighting words. Chapter 18 and verse 13, He counsels us thirdly against hasty words. Hasty words. Words... Too quickly spoken. Chapter 18, verse 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Responding verbally to a matter before you have taken the time to sufficiently listen to the speaker's position is unwise. It is out of sync with the character of God. and We all do this. But a vital aspect of godly speech is faithful listening. I don't believe this proverb is teaching us that it is always evil to interrupt a person. Often that it's rude, and generally interruption is to be avoided, but just generally, not necessarily always. Uh, I could probably illustrate this quite obviously for all of us you you uh, your, your boss harshly accuses you of a very significant error that was made at work and that error took place while you were home sick And the boss doesn't know it as, as the boss is getting going and accusing and lecturing you here and holding you to account it'd be a wise thing to interrupt and say wait a minute i wasn't even here that day i was sick at home I mean, I don't think the boss is going to be particularly pleased when you listen to this whole lecture for five long minutes, staring there, listening to every word, and then when the boss is done saying, I wasn't here, what's the boss going to say? Why don't you tell me that right away, right? So it's not that interruption is innately evil. There are times when it is, times when it's not. But what this proverb does stress is that failing to hear what is in a person's mind before answering a matter is not skillful use of speech. What's going on in my heart when I answer a matter before I've really listened to it and know what it's about? Impatience. Pride. A sense of superiority or inflated self-importance or some other godless orientation motive, motivates me to talk before I've heard. It might be interrupting the sentence before it's concluded. It might be just not asking enough questions to really get to the bottom of the matter. As verse 2 puts says that a fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. That is not wise. To simply bide our time while someone else is speaking so that we can say what we want to say and we're not listening, we're not connecting, we don't know what they're really saying. Hasty words were counseled against it. So lying words, fighting words, hasty words need to be crushed out of our speech patterns. Other foolish speech patterns could be added to these. We just limit it to this for sake of time here today. But let's turn then and move more positively, again, not so much within the Proverbs, but just thematically here for our own discussion. And let me parallel this with three other ideas about wise speech. First of all, skillful speech includes thoughtful and restrained words. Thoughtful and restrained words. Chapter 15, verse 28. Chapter 15 and verse 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. You see the parallel with the verse we've just considered. Answering a matter before we really hear it. Same essential idea. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Wise people realize there is potential for great harm in their words. It's not necessarily evil to offer a quick response, but it is foolish to engage the tongue while the brain is in neutral. We use the phrase, open mouth, insert foot. What do we mean by that? I heard a a speaker use that phrase in India. The congregation found it Absolutely hilarious. They were all just roaring with laughter and had absolutely no idea what he meant. (laughs) I don't know where that came from exactly, but we kind of know what it means. Open mouth, insert foot. Talking before thinking. Talking before we realize where that statement is going to lead and how it's going to be received. And before we know it, whatever that means, we're chewing on our foot. The word ponder here, the Hebrew word, means to muse, to think. An amusement park is a place you go to not think. You, you, you just go to be amused. You want to turn your brain off and do funny things to your stomach or whatever it is, but you, you don't want to necessarily think. I mean, who is thinking when they get on a roller coaster? You, got, you, got, you want to put thought aside, right? That's part of the fun. <laughs> It's an amusement park. Here, we're called to do the exact opposite with our speech, and that is to muse, to think, to be thoughtful about the words that leave our mouth. Chapter 10, verse 19 offers a helpful parallel. Chapter 10, verse 19. Ten nineteen. when words are many... Transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The restraint, the musing, the thoughtfulness of speech. Thoughtful, restrained words are encouraged here. Fill the air with unrestrained speech, and you are sure to say something that violates God's will and something you're going to really regret. Restraint means to learn to discipline our speech and talk to our heads, not letting our speech run ahead of those thoughts. Chapter 13 and verse 3, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Big mouths have small lives, at least messed up ones. Chapter 17, verse 28, if you want to turn there, 17, 28, 17.28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Wise people learn how and when to hold their tongues. We need to develop the skill of saying nothing at the right time. Even fools can practice this skill. They can't speak with wisdom, but they can say nothing And they can look wise. Silence is sometimes that good. It can make a person who's morally foolish look really wise. So let's remember that. There's times to learn, we need to learn, that there are times when we should not speak. Those skillful in speech evidence this wisdom in knowing when to say nothing. I'll just quote it, but 2123, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. There again we see the restraint, the thoughtfulness. 2515. Turn there, 2515. Considering again the restraint of words, the thoughtfulness that goes into speech, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone patient, level-headed, calm speech has such power, it can even move a monarch. You go screaming wildly and throwing a fit in front of a monarch, and you're going to get absolutely nowhere. Well, nowhere good. But here's the power of words. If spoken rightly, soft words, gentle kind, persistent, patient, level-headed speech can be very persuasive. This is something we all need to learn on varying levels. It's one of the first things that young people need to learn within a home in particular. You can get a lot further with mom and dad with gentle, persuasive, persistent speech than you can throwing a fit. And at 65 years of age, and 85 years of age, and 28 years of age, we can do the same kind of thing. It looks a little more mature, but it's really the same thing. We're just kicking and screaming and throwing a fit with our words and wanting our way, our way. This is not smart. It's foolish. Learn the power of gentle, persistent, level-headed speech. You can move the heart of a monarch with that speech and that monarch can kill more people than an atom bomb or save more lives and it's a word that's moved the monarch's heart there's power in such speech but this, of course, takes the control of God's Spirit upon our tongues to be thoughtful and restrained in our words, to know when not to speak and to know how to speak. And that leads to the second idea, and that is that we are to speak then healing and encouraging words. Healing and encouraging words. Chapter 12, verse 18. Chapter 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Those who are developing skillful speech patterns learn to use words that comfort troubled souls and encourage discouraged hearts. Chapter 15 and verse 4. Chapter 15 and verse 4. A gentle tongue, or as you see in the margin, The Hebrew can be translated, a healing tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. The Hebrew word translated gentle here, healing. We can use speech that heals and invigorates. We're counseled here to develop the skill of employing words that enliven the listener. We have that power by the grace of God with our speech to enliven, encourage, heal, lift up. We can encourage one who is discouraged. We can give comfort to those in sorrow. We can exhort, correct the wayward with words that point them on the right path and help them want to do what is right. We can rejoice with those who rejoice. I'll quote 16.24, Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Our words can have the power to heal, to sweeten the souls of others, to bring them life. And we're brought then to the question this morning, do my words operate that way in this world? Do, your, do the words that you speak in your home, in the church, at work, at school, or wherever you are, does your speech encourage and heal? Or does it tear down? Does it encourage or discourage and poison those around you? Serious question. Significant aspect of our lives. Thirdly, wise and appropriate words. Wise and appropriate words. Chapter 10, verse 31. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut out, will be cut off. Skillful speech synchronizes with the counsel of God; perverse or godless words will be destroyed. Verse 32: The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Godless people love to say godless things. They love to express the wickedness of their heart and bring others along into that wickedness wise people speak words that please the Lord. It would do us all well to remember that God listens to every conversation that we have. And to remember that the mouth of the righteous always brings forth wisdom. Are the words of my mouth acceptable to the Lord? Well, again, many, many references to speech some that are on different tracks than what we've considered but for the sake of time here we limit it to this a few ideas to encourage to help us think about the words that we speak as we filter this counsel Though we need to very much consider that the wise counsel received here is not a call to merely exercise willpower over our tongues. This is not counsel. Learn to bite your tongue. Learn when to keep quiet. Learn some new tricks in your speech patterns and you'll do better at work And things will go smoother at home. Something like that. The key to all of this we need to recognize as we understand who we are before God is that our words flow from our souls. They flow from who we are. So we're not talking about how to wield a hammer here. We're talking here how to express what is within us and that means we need to Address what is in us. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The springs of life expressed in our words flow from the nature of our hearts. Jesus said it this way, in Luke six forty five, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So there's, there's one way of dealing with speech, and that's a, listen to this seminar and we'll give you the key. And you come to this one sermon, this one seminar, and we give you these tricks, and everything's new. All of your speech changes. Everything's right. I mean, you'd have to be really foolish to think that's going to work. But on, a, on, a, on another level, there's those saying, well, I'm going to work really hard at this, and I'm going to get these principles together, and I'm not going to forget about them. I'm going to get them all together. I'm really going to work on this area of my life. Now, that person has got more hope than the first, who thinks that it's like semi-miraculous, But this person also, who's just working, working, working to get speech right, is in trouble. If this person doesn't recognize, as Proverbs 4 says, and as Luke 6 says in the words of Jesus, that we bring out of the treasure of our heart that which is there, and it is displayed often by our speech, So let's go to a third concept here and say, as we have been together today as Christ's church, that the problem is there's a lot of evil in our hearts, and it comes out in our speech. By nature, we see, say things over and over again that are morally foolish and bankrupt. Our hearts belch up all manner of sin, pride, and arrogance, and self-love, and self-pity. And we don't say it like that. I'm really rooted in self-pity right now, and so I'm going to say this to you. We're not that honest, and many times we're not even that self-aware. But that's what's really happening. If the speech could come out like it really was, it would would come out with arrogance, and then I'd make my comment. Pride, then I make my comment. I hate you, and then I make my comment. Or whatever it would be. The truth of the matter is we do lie, we do slander, we do gossip. We do use flattery to our advantage. The truth is we use harsh words and unthoughtful words. Words that tear down and discourage and criticize. Human speech distinguishes us from all other forms of creation, but it also provides for us unique capacities to harm and to express our own innate rebellion against God. So what? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 12:36, I tell you on the day of judgment people will give account for every careless word. For every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by Your words, you will be condemned. Hearing that from the mouth of our Lord leaves me in utter poverty of spirit. I could point to a lot of good words that I've said in this life, but I could point to many that would not justify me before God. And it is only as we come before God in utter abject spiritual poverty recognizing that all that we deserve is condemnation because of the words of our mouth let alone any other areas of sin. And we must throw ourselves at the mercy of God. And here's the wonder of it that what Jesus has said here isn't the end of the account. I don't think, I I certainly don't have in my mind, I don't think it would be right for us to have the sense of standing before the judgment seat of Christ and Him pointing a finger in our face and saying, give account for this word. We will, in one sense of that word, but in a greater sense of the word, it is for these sins that Christ has died. We won't spend time in it here this morning, but in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We are lifeless in our rebellion against God. We cannot stand before Him just because of the words that we've spoken. But in His mercy, God in Christ pays the penalty of our sin and gives to us in His mercy His grace. The forgiveness of sins. And as the book of Ephesians continues from chapter 2 there, where he talks about this transforming work of God in our lives, I don't think it's a mistake that he then says in chapter 4, there's things you need to put off, and there's things you need to put on, and one of those areas is the way you talk. And at the end of chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, maybe you want to read it this afternoon. There's a wonderful call to us to transform speech, to use it in a way that is new and living by the indwelling Spirit of God, to walk in the forgiveness of Christ, to know that our grace is not in us, but in Him. That our goodness is founded and rooted in His goodness placed on our account so that by His indwelling Spirit we are cleansed from sin and He begins the process of persistently cleaning up our speech. Removing the lying words and the hasty words, the godless speech of wickedness that belches up from our sinful being and by His Spirit we begin to speak words of grace. I'm in process here. Are you? I hope you're in this game. But it's got to start not by you saying, I'm going to get things figured out and getting my speech act together. It's going to start by you coming to Christ and receiving His forgiveness. And realizing that only His death and resurrection can atone for your sin. Only His atonement can cleanse your mouth. But then forgiven. We don't become perfect. We continue to use speech in godless ways, but slowly, by the presence of His Spirit, we begin to change. And we begin to build up and encourage and control speech for the glory of God and for the good of those who are around us. And this power flows in us and thus from us, to change the world. And isn't that what God has done in Christ? The Word became flesh. The Word. In all of its purity, in all of its power, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, speaking words of grace and truth, and ultimately, dying in our place and announcing it is finished. Father, we come into your presence immediately and directly here in prayer, and we thank you for the finished work of Christ. And that our speech patterns are covered by His blood. And that this transforming work is being done in us. We give You thanks. We acknowledge our sin. I I trust in this moment that prayers of confession and prayers of conviction will be flowing up to You as a sweet-smelling savor. I pray, Father, in Your mercy that You will continue to root out that sin in us. But we thank You, God, that we can now speak words of grace. Where there was a cursing of God, there is now the praise of His people. Where there is hatred, animosity, stirring up of strife, there is now reconciling words of grace and truth and mercy. And I pray that You would cleanse the speech of this church. Cleanse the speech of our homes. Cleanse the speech of me. And I pray, God, in your mercy that you will continue to do a work by your grace, drawing us to yourself and teaching us to speak words of truth and words of beauty. We thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ, and for his transforming work by your Spirit in our lives praying also that you would bring to Christ anyone who is separated from Him. In His name we pray. Amen.